Hello, I'm Charlie Webster. The afterlife and how to prepare for it. A simple statement, but in brutal reality, is it a logical one? Understandably, subjective emotions and reactions are prevalent in reports of near-death experiences, or NDEs as we often refer to it. This episode of Died and Survived features a wide range of respected opinion leaders in medical, philosophical and psychological circles, dissecting the probability of an existence beyond this world. Is there something and someone waiting for us when we cross? And is it actually to some other place? Hopefulness or hopelessness? Science and faith quite often contradict each other. So will life after death push belief to a further boundary of acceptance? This is Died and Survived. Hearts and Minds. My name is George Mishur. I am an anesthesiologist and a neuroscientist at the University of Michigan. And I also serve as chair of the Department of Anesthesiology here. So in addition to being a clinical anesthesiologist, I am a neuroscientist who has worked on consciousness and how to identify markers of consciousness so we could understand, for example, when somebody is truly anesthetized or when someone is truly in a vegetative state. And so this is something that I've been working on both in humans and in animal studies. And it was actually a colleague of mine, Dr. Jimo Borjigan, who is a physiologist who works in a lab down the hall who asked me if we could use something called the bispectral index in a rat. And the bispectral index is an EEG machine that's often used in operating rooms. So it measures brain waves and it creates an index to give you a sense of how conscious someone is. And I had studied this clinically and you know I was curious I said why are you interested in this and you know it came to light ultimately that she had observed some surges of neurochemistry uh, in dying animals, which is not all that unexpected, but she was curious about the neurophysiology. And I said, well, look, we have much more sophisticated analytic techniques that we've been studying in humans and animals. Perhaps we could apply these and, and create an experimental model. And so I want to be clear and give her credit for really thinking about this. And that's what got us going. It was a combination of this interest in what's happening in the dying brain. Is there anything meaningful? Uh, and my experience studying consciousness in conscious state transitions to unconsciousness. So in terms of, of the reasons why, is that to try and help a patient, say, that is in a coma and make sure that we're not letting somebody go? that actually is conscious? Or is it more to see if there is anything after all consciousness survives after the physical death? Yeah, so first of all, from my perspective, I was studying these biomarkers of consciousness really for more, I mean, first and foremost, I'm interested in it intellectually and philosophically and neuroscientifically, but also from the, the practical perspective of trying to have what you might call a behavior independent marker of consciousness. Now, I suspect that you believe that I'm conscious, and I certainly believe that you're conscious. Phew. <laughs> but why do I believe that? I can't, I can't prove that. I can't demonstrate it. I, I am really privy 
to one and only one instance of subjective experience, and that's my own. And aside from that, we're making inferences on behavior. I say something to you in this interview, you respond to me in a meaningful way, I wave hello, you wave back. So we're making inferences on behavior, and we do that every day, whether we know it or not. We're, we're making assumptions and attributions about the conscious experience of others. And that usually works, but it doesn't always work. And there can be a dissociation between conscious experience and the ability to express behavior. So in the operating room, we give drugs that paralyze people after they're unconscious, of course. So if I walk in and wave to an anesthetized patient and ask them how they're doing, even if they were completely conscious under the effects of those paralytic drugs, they could not respond behaviorally. And so that is an example of where somebody could have what's called covert consciousness. And that is where we want to be able to intervene in this setting of the operating room where we do 50 million cases a year in North America alone and hundreds of millions worldwide. But then there are also other situations such as what once was called the vegetative state now is uh, referred to as unresponsive wakefulness syndrome, where individuals who can't give a meaningful behavioral response might nonetheless be conscious. Yeah. That was the broad goal. Now, when it comes to this near-death study, we were really interested in whether or not there were neural correlates of consciousness that were appearing in this near-death state to try to understand is there a neurobiological basis for what has long been reported uh, in terms of the near-death experience. So going to the first part of the answer, I just hearing you speak, I'm probably like, there's not many people I suppose that can almost viscerally feel that because I know what it was like to be in that position. And I'm sure some of our listeners do as well. For me, I was in a comatose state and I was also paralyzed, as you said, through the drugs that were given to me. But I remember so much of being in the coma and I found it really distressing because, and I don't want to distress anybody, but because I couldn't communicate. So I could recall certain conversations when I came out of the coma. Like, there's a funny one, like my mom and my brother um, were in my room in intensive care and they were arguing about the water because one of them should have brought the water and the other one thought they brought the water. And I remember that whole conversation. And initially I found it comforting because <laughs> that's what our family's like. But at the same time, I found it really distressing because I couldn't communicate. And also I heard certain conversations about whether I would survive and then I got worse. And I found it really distressing because I felt like I couldn't communicate and tell them that I was there. So I was really scared that... I was going to die and they wouldn't know that I could hear them. Yes. First of all, I'm so sorry to hear that you've had that experience. And having studied awareness in the operating room, unintended awareness during what was intended to be general anesthesia, I know that, uh, and in fact, this has been demonstrated, that the experience of paralysis is the most emotionally distressing experience, even more so than pain, which 
most people have a reference. You've got a frame of reference for what it's like to have pain, but not being able to move, not being able to communicate, not being able to signal that you subjectively are still there is incredibly traumatic. Um, and, and that is part of the motivation to try to have a monitor that we can prevent those kinds of experiences from happening in the operating room. I think the other important point that you bring up, and just to take this back to the anesthesia um, and the operating room perspective is, when we're speaking, we should assume consciousness. Um, because there is a, a lot of psychological trauma that's inflicted upon, you know, superimposed on the physical trauma. People heard negative comments about their body in the operating room, for example, or heard something distressing about a diagnosis or a prognosis. And, and so from the ethics and the ethical perspective, making the presumption of conscious experience, even though clearly we don't want that to be happening, um, is probably the most appropriate way uh, to conduct ourselves in those clinical situations. Yeah, I'm like <clears throat> kind of giving you thumbs up and smiling because I'm so glad you said that. It caused me a lot of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, afterwards because I had so many memories of that situation. Even when I fell asleep at night, I found it really hard to fall asleep because straight away I thought I was back in that situation because I had so many memories around it. Just listening to you talk, it, it just made me think of a time when I remember concentrating on my left hand so hard because I was desperately trying to get my left hand to move because and the reason why it was the left hand is because my mum and my brother were on my left side and even though I couldn't see they were on my left side I could sense and hear they were on my left side and so I was trying to signal to them like with my left hand and and I suppose like I do really want to talk about near-death experience but I because of your specialism I just really wanted to hear what you thought around that and I suppose there's two sides to the reason it's why you're doing some of your work as well. Um, and is it, is it quite common that people have those experiences then? Fortunately, I'll just speak from the anesthesia perspective where it's my area, but also yeah. I think more systematically studied. Fortunately, it is very rare for someone to have an experience during surgery and then remember it afterwards. Wow. Now, that in a general surgical population happens about one in a thousand. And even within that one in a thousand, many are just transient auditory sensations. They might have heard something or a tactile sensation. Um, so fortunately, it's pretty rare. But when it happens, and, and it happens in the kind of situation we were just describing, where somebody is awake, they're paralyzed, they're in pain, it can be life-altering. And certainly people have PTSD. Mm. Uh, as a result of that. And being paralyzed is one of the biggest predictors of emotional distress during the experience and afterwards. A heightened state of consciousness lies at the core of almost all reported NDEs. So I called up neuroscientist Christoph Koch to explain more. You see, science is all about external relationship. It's a relationship between stars or among molecules among you know species and all of that so it's ultimately it's it's external stuff consciousness is intrinsic right the intrinsic nature of my brain it it is it feels like something it feels good or bad or pleasurable or painful and so the challenge is to reconcile 
the third-person perspective that has been enormously successful at describing the external world with this first-person perspective that we know is at the heart of, uh, of reality. I think it can be done. Uh, it can be done. I've dedicated my, in my life to it. We know that from 200 years of neurology, if you have a hole in your brain or something bad happens to your brain, you could lose consciousness altogether or you can have changes in your consciousness that are quite predictable. This is what the last 150 years of functional neurology has shown us. So we know this is a very close relationship, not between the heart, as most cultures thought, including Aristotle, but between the brain and the mind. Mm. And so um, one can explain these things. And then today we have these wonderful things that, you know, like, like psychedelics that, that, that can affect your consciousness. There are near-death experiences that obviously dramatically um, affect your consciousness. And the challenge is in each time to explain what's the relationship between these experiences, what you actually experience, the phenomenology, the way it feels like, and the underlying brain states. It might seem like a really simple question, but can you explain the difference? Because I think sometimes we use the word brain and mind as synonymous, but what is the difference between the brain and the mind? Well, the brain you can touch, you can poke into, right? I mean, you can come to my, you can come to the Allen Institute, we can show you brains. There's human brains, there are mice brains, there are all sorts of brains. So it's a physical thing. If it's alive, it, you know, gently pulses, it's red because, you know, the, the blood, and if you remove the blood, it's, it's sort of the consistency of tofu. So it's a physical organ, just like your heart and your liver. The mind sort of is one of the, if you want a product, it's, it's the sum of all the stuff that goes on consciously or unconsciously, right? When I ask you, um, you know, what's the maiden name of your mom? Clarkson. <laughs> okay, so where does it come from? Well, you think of, you don't actually know, right? Suddenly the name is there. Well, so that's an operation that the mind had to perform. Now we know there's this close relationship between the mind and the brain. Because as I said, if you, for example, if you get, um, you know, dementia, if things go wrong with your, physically with your brain, then if I ask you your maiden name, then you yeah. may have no idea, right? Or you may not even recognize your daughter in, in late stage Alzheimer because there's something wrong with your brain. So do you believe there's consciousness after death or do you feel, because I think you just said earlier that, you know, and then you die and then con there's no consciousness. Is that what you found or you believe? Well, I mean, let's put it that way. We have no evidence, we have no credible evidence that once this organ, my brain, dissolves in its underlying constituent matter, that there's any remnants of my consciousness left in me. I mean, my children, my spouse, my friends may remember me, but the me is, is gone. I, I, <clears throat> so I had several meetings with the Dalai Lama talking about these questions. Oh, wow. What and, was that you know, like? I know it was very enjoyable. He's a very interesting, he's a wonderful human, very humble, very funny also, very funny. And he has this deep belly laugh. <laughs> but sort of we, I, I agreed to differ with him when we talked about reincarnation because, I mean, there's this koan, you can say four words, no brain, never mind. No brain, never mind. So without having a physical substrate, Right, so he agrees when you die, you die. But then, of course, they believe you go into this bardo, right? This Tibetan sort of no man's yeah. land between one life and the other life. But, but to me, as a scientist, that doesn't make sense. I mean, I get it why people want this to be true. But, but with, with I mean, where 
where your specific memories, you know, the memories that make you you, they have to have some substrate. We know this. Either it's in a computer, in a in a memory chip, or it's in brain tissue, or it has to be written down on a piece of paper. It could be in some fancy technology, but there has to be a substrate. Without such a such a substrate, there is no there is no consciousness. I mean, what did Dalai Lama say back to you in his response then? Because I know a bit about the Bardo state. It's basically the state between I think it's two years, right? It's like almost like a limbo until the right body's being chosen for the reincarnation in yeah, Buddhism. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, limbo, of course, is another religious term, in this case coming out of Catholic religion, where yeah. limbo is the place where unbaptized children go, uh, you know, when they die. So, yeah, these are all interesting places. But, uh, look, as scientists, we have no evidence. You can believe, of course, what you what you want to believe. We have no evidence for any such places, n- neither the limbo nor the bardo. What was his response? Was it all very polite? Oh, he just laughed. He just <laughs> laughed and said, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> so, in terms of being no evidence, what do you think the lived experience, for want of a better word, or the anecdotes and narratives for people that have experienced something that has been termed and coined near-death experience? What Do you think, do you see that as evidence? Oh, oh, or? I mean, they're, they're, and the entire real, look, I, I had a near-death experience. I died. I Did was you? completely gone. Everything disintegrated. There was just this bright light and this feeling of terror and ecstasy. No question. And, and I don't doubt that that people have other or similar or maybe different experiences, right? But that's quite different from saying that that I was somehow dead. I mean, of course, people have very different de- um, definition of death by the modern definition of clinical death, the Uniform Determination of Death Act of 1971. You're dead when either, you know, you, you die by conventional cardiac uh, your heart stops and your lungs stop beating, or your brain is irreversible dead. It's irreversible. And obviously, in this case, it wasn't irreversible because here I'm talking to you. So by definition, you weren't dead. You may have been in an unusual state due to your anoxia or other things, but that's different from saying you were actually dead. I didn't realize that. And in terms of the fact that you had your own near-death experience, it didn't change your perception in the work that you've done. And how would you explain, say, the light that you saw, do you think it was still the fact that you were alive because it was near death? Or do you think it was just your brain and it's kind of shooting off various different things? Yeah, I think it was a very unusual state. Uh, there There was no ego, right? There was no self. Space was annihilated almost entirely. Time certainly was annihilated. It wasn't too slow, it wasn't too fast. The external body was annihilated. I had no, no, there was no body. There wasn't a, there was no ego. There wasn't a crystal there said, oh my God, shit, what's happened? <laughs> All of that was gone. I was intensely conscious and there was this, this terror and ecstasy, this very weird, bizarre thing. You know, theologians have called this t- the, the tremendous mysterium, you know, this very strange, very powerful feeling. Yeah, and it stays with me. I mean, every day I think about it because it's a very powerful experience. But I think ultimately it's a very unusual uh, product. Ultimately, I think it's still due to my my brain being in a particular state. Look, I give you uh, a sort of an analogy. What happened if you would never remember dreams? But then one night for whatever magical happened, because I gave you a drug, let's say, 
one night you would remember your dream. Okay? And then, of course, it would be revolutionary for you because suddenly in your dreams, dreams are as real as life itself, right? In in the dream, you can't tell typically, unless it's a lucid dream, which is very rare, you can't tell that you're dreaming. You're flying, you're meeting long lost, you know, lovers and relatives and pets, you're walking through walls. So, of course, you say, well, I've discovered this entire other world. I know it exists because I felt it. I was there. I was talking to my beloved dog that died 10 years ago. So I know that it's there. But of course, we don't do that anymore. Why? Because we dream every night. Other people dream. We, we know what dream experiences are like. And so we get used to it. Now, these near-death experiences, because fortunately, most of us are not often exposed to, you know, anoxia and all these other things. Therefore, we're totally discombobulated when we experience them. Let's bring Dr. Raymond Moody back in to share his thoughts on his half a century of research and philosophical study. When people come to you with their experiences, which I'm sure many people do and have done, as you said, over the years, you've heard thousands. Like, what do you, because I know you do consultations, like, what do you think sometimes it's just that people are wanting hope and comfort because I feel like we're all scared of this unknown thing or we're, you know, the majority of us are scared of death. Well, you know, it may seem counterintuitive in our era because um, and this is, you know, the common thing they say about the idea of an afterlife is that so it's just wishful thinking. But I don't think so because uh, if you think about it, there were many people who positively didn't want there to be an afterlife. You know, like the whole atomic uh, theory of Democritus, they sort of figured out that things are made up of tiny little bits that we can't see. And um, he, in his writing about the near-death experience, he said there's no such thing as a moment of death. And he said, these experiences are that basically what that is, is that this is the residual biological activity in the body. Mm. Yeah, I've heard that. Uh, yeah. So that much I'm past, you know, it's not that. But then the next part is, um, you know, and I, and I, I like I said, I've, I've some to, I just give up. I mean, to be honest, I have to say that, yeah, I mean, it seems to me that there is an afterlife, mm. which is still a shock to me. But the fact is that many people don't want there to be an afterlife, you know, it's for whatever reason. Yeah, I wonder what the psychology of that is. Like, why would well, you want that? Well, it's probably different. Some of them say, well, they're afraid it might be a hellish thing, or that some of them say my religion says that, you know, you go into um, an obtundation till the end of time. Or some people just say it's nonsense, right? And because uh, they say, well, what are you talking about in the first place? Life after death. It's like I've met a lot of people who are just kind of reconciled with the fact that, you know, life ends. And to them, to take it beyond that is kind of unnecessary. One of my best friends in life was Milton Friedman, not the famous economist, but uh, my Milton was equally famous. But he was, he worked for a number of administrations. He worked in the White House and Congress and so on. And um, 
Milton, at a certain point, you know, we were studying this near death, near death stuff, and Milton, you know, Milton said, "I hope not." I mean, he was kind of realizing that there seems to be, you know, but he he said, well, "I just hope not," and he just said it in such an emotional way. I mean, there really are certain people who just don't want there to be an afterlife. Mm. I'd love to know what do you hope there is. After all, you know, you've dedicated so much of your life and it's just fascinating to listen to you and what is somebody that's kind of, you know, researched so much and heard so many people's experiences, what would you like that to be? You know something, honest, I can't, I, I can honestly say I just, I don't have a hope on it either way. I mean, I just... I'm just sort of waiting to see what happens. Mm. I mean, I'm curious more than anything else. You know, I mean, I just love all the knowledge that I've accumulated in my life. It's a very valuable thing to me. And it's to me, it's been very fulfilling to spend a life searching for knowledge. And a lot of people over the years have told me that at a certain point in their life review that when when scenes came up where they had been learning something that this being who's with them sort of pauses or looks focuses in on that and the thought comes to them that this is a permanent process that even after you leave here that there will be learning and uh, I've had a again a lot of people with these extremely lengthy cardiac arrests who um, talk about becoming aware of a whole realm of, it, it just seems like it's the whole a realm of knowledge. And at the same time, another possibility is I can perceive is that the knowledge that we have here is just relative to this framework, you see. It's, uh, it's kind of like from the literary point of view, the backstory, mm-hmm. right? I think that life is narrative. It's uh, elderly patients uh, tell me that, um, that you know, the ones who are really, you know, reflective and all say that the older you get, the more the impression develops that you, as you look back at your life, that it's been a play or a drama or a script or a movie, whatever metaphor they use. But I've, and I think that's correct. Plato said, if you think about it, the life of a human being is is not a very important thing. You know, it's not a big thing. And he said to him, he said, we are God's toys. And he said, the best kind of life is just to kind of play at it. Do you think that's quite hard, though, as an individual to think? I find that quite hard because that almost makes me think, well, what's the point? Well, to me, it's like um, you get immersed in life is the trouble. See, it's like you can step back and reflect and realize the narrative structure of it. But then, you know, you hear an explosion out in the backyard, right? Or or you know, a car comes careening down. I mean, it's like life always intrudes and we are right back into it. I can always kind of realize that this is an illusion of a certain type. And at the same time, I can feel the upsets and so on with it too. So Mm. I think it's possible to have a bi-level consciousness of this life. 
Hume thought, by the way, he said the only form of uh, afterlife that he thought that a philosophical person could entertain would be reincarnation. Possibly because Hume, being a historian, I'm sure he realized the importance of narrative in human life. And uh, that might have predisposed him to that, but it's, I think that's right. I mean, the way I put it together, we live through life as the protagonist or actor, and then you, time stands still and you see everything from the point of view of the other characters through the life review. And then uh, you go through some incomprehensible process and then you're back here on another storyline. Culture and spiritualism, and particularly their geographical placement, are intrinsic to the near-death experiences reported globally. An expert in this research field is author Dr. Gregory Shushan. I have written about mediumship and reincarnation, intermission memories and things like that, but I think it's a, it's a whole different kind of thing. NDEs are like in a class by themselves to me because of that spontaneity. And the, the, the way I, I looked at shamanism was um, basically how it relates to ND because they're both about, well, I should say specific kind of shamanism, the, the other world journey type, because you know there's all, all varying other types of healing rituals that can be considered shamanic. So um, the kind of shamanism we're talking about is, is where the shaman deliberately leaves their body um, after going through some kind of rituals, um, either like repetitive drumming or dancing until they you know, collapse in exhaustion or through drug use or both. And then they leave their body in order to travel to the other world. So there's a couple of ways that that intersects with NDEs other than just you know the, the general concept. One is that they often do that in order to, um, they call it soul retrieval, to retrieve the soul of somebody who is effectively having an NDE. So if somebody is, um, you know, has passed out and they're lying there dead or dying, the shaman will go there and, and find their soul and, and try to bring them back to the body. So, so in that sense, the shaman is actually entering that other person's NDE by entering into this, you know, experience that they're having in this otherworldly place. But then there's the other way that it's related in that shamans are deliberately bringing about these experiences just to travel to the other world to, to get information or to learn about what it's like there, to learn what kind of, um, you know, obstacles or requirements might be in order to, um, you know, negotiate the, the different other, other world realms. Um, but whether they're actual uh, NDE experiences, I guess, you know, depends on a couple of things. Um, one is our definition of, of what a near-death experience is. I mean, does it have to be when, you know, the brain and the body are compromised? Um, do because it, there do are... Do you think it does? Do you think it, what would you describe as an ND definition? I mean, in my work, I've limited it to ones that have an actual near-death context because because that's really the defining feature as far as comparing like with like. But then... There are a lot of experiences where people said, you know, no, I was just sitting there at my desk and I left my body and I was at one with the universe and whatever. And then I came back and everything was fine. And they were not near death at all. Or there's people who think that they're drowning or they, they fell from a cliff and they were actually never in danger of death, um, but they had a full life review or whatever other NDE effects. 
So, um, yeah, I think they're not necessarily brought about only by being near death. But again, whether the depth of the experience is uh, influenced by by the the depth of death, you know, yeah, no, by how dead somebody yeah. is and, and, and for how long. And in some of these shamanic practices, it's hard to figure out what exactly went on because, you know, they have different cultures will have different ways of not only defining death, but saying things like, this person burned himself to death, went to the other world and came back. And obviously that can't happen from our worldview. You know? What is left, I suppose, in your own research to, to try and find out and to try and study? And do you think we can have more of a conclusion? Or does that matter, even matter? Uh, yeah, in some ways it doesn't. I, I love how you like, you kind of tipped your head slightly inside. I was like... Oh, well, <laughs> don't ask me that. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's it's a good, valid question. <laughs> but um, I mean, there's a, from, you know, speaking as the historian of religions and anthropology, archaeology guy, there's always another path to go down. You know, I, I want to do a book on Greek and Roman NDEs and, and the afterlife at some point. And uh, my new book, um, The Next World, that I deal, I talk up. there's two chapters in there. One's on uh, reincarnation uh, memories of people who basically report remembering the NDE that they had when they were transitioning from one personality to the next. So um, I wanted to compare, they call them intermission memories. Uh, and so I wanted to compare those with accounts of, of NDEs from around the world. And some of those um, ones I have, they're from... Japan and Burma and Thailand and, and around the world. So it was interesting to look at those from a cross-cultural perspective. And they were very similar, just to kind of cut to the chase. Really? You know, so the, so you, know, the, you said from one personality to another. Does that mean a different person? What do you mean by... Yeah, yeah. what I mean is um, if somebody... This is mostly children who remember past lives, who... Um, wow they usually from the age of very young, sometimes like two, two, three years old or younger, they'll start talking about their previous identity saying, you know, where's my other mommy or where's, where's my wife? (laughs) Where's my husband, whatever. But yeah, I, I I wanted to look at the, the memory of, so this child starts saying um, that they also remembered in their previous life, how they died, for example. Well, they'll remember their profession, where they lived. Sometimes they can point out the house they lived in. There's some pretty compelling evidence for this stuff. But for my interest, it was when they started saying, and I remember it, I was, you know, I was run over by a car or by a, a horse cart or whatever. Then I left my body and I went to the other world and I saw a being of light. And all it's, it was that specific stuff that, um, you know, piqued my interest. So yeah, I looked at those across cultures. And then from the world of spiritual mediumship, I wanted to do the same thing because there's a lot of people who claim that there's good evidence from you know, mediumship studies where uh, spirits communicate through a medium and, and will give some kind of information that the sitter or the researcher never knew about, where to find an object or some somebody has recently gotten ill and died or is going to die or you know, this kind of confirmable information. I'm less convinced by that, um, less compelled by it rather than than the NDEs or reincarnation stuff, but still it was interesting. And a lot of the reports from 
supposedly spirits in the other world through these mediums are very much like NDEs as well. So, you know, they describe what the journey to the other world is like and what, what the um, afterlife state is like and, and all these kinds of things that are very similar to what people who have had NDEs describe. And obviously most people are not familiar with, you know, 19th century mediumistic descriptions of the afterlife. So that's not going to be a, you know, a, a cultural influence either. But do you think, do you think that's a popular culture influence then? Because are we, it are we interpreting yeah. what we see through, I don't know, maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of making me question my own self now. Well, but. with yours, I mean, you didn't say, um, you know, I saw Jesus no. or or whatever. So but I thought I saw death. Yeah, but death isn't a cultural construct. Right. It's it's death is just, uh, you know, everybody dies and all cultures have to accept death. So, I mean, from what you've told me about yours, it doesn't seem a hugely enculturated experience. You don't even really ex- describe it as a spiritual experience or religious experience. It's more like a a weird and somewhat inexplicable, frightening thing that happened, you know. But it's also not typical of a lot of negative near-death experience accounts where they say I was being dragged by demons of hell, which, you know, sometimes those seem like they have evangelical Christian elements that make me a little skeptical. I suppose my only slight religious context was, I think probably during kind of being quite angry and not and and to to whoever <laughs> maybe god maybe the world maybe about why yeah. i was in that situation and hurt around it and but then yeah. at the same time afterwards i did i have had a my own personal thing about whether like belief of i mean i'm hesitant to say it because i don't want it to seem like I don't know why I'm hesitant to say it, but I do have thoughts on myself, you know, I, like I I do believe that I was meant to be here for a reason and I was meant to survive mm-hmm. and, and is it, you know, did God always intend, was it God, you know, was it whatever I think God is or anybody thinks God is? Um, yeah. But I would never have said that before. Didn't use the G word before. Not really. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I did have a few experiences leading up to it but that'll probably take me about a day to explain to you (laughs) Um, (laughs) I suppose it made me question why I survived so I probably had a little bit of an identity crisis and Mm -hmm. I did feel I don't understand why I survived and other people didn't I remember meeting a a mother of her son died younger than me of one of the tropical diseases I had and it wasn't even as complicated as me and he didn't survive and I did. So I kind of went through a bit of that, which I know it's slightly different from the near-death experience, but I related it to that and related to what it meant. Yeah. Um, I suppose that's getting a bit Well, bit yeah, I mean, <laughs> no, I, I think that it's it's a tricky thing because, I mean, you, you said you saw this light and you felt like the light was wanting to take you or, or draw you yeah. away. Yeah, it was like pull, it was like go. such a strong energy that was like pulling me to to right. it. To, to, and I knew it was to die. Like I knew it was yeah. to go and to die and that, right. that was it. So, I mean, if we assume that this is some kind of genuine spiritual experience going on and maybe even that light had an identity or whatever, aside from that, it may just be that that 
kid that you mentioned was just on a total physical, biological level, not able to be saved and you were. There, there doesn't have to be a spiritual explanation for why one person lived and one died. And this is kind of ties into um, what I was saying where I, I think there is a, a rational basis for, for belief in an afterlife. And um, you know, I, I guess what I mean is there's a coherent way to envision an afterlife that encompasses all these differences. And I think there can be an afterlife that is actually totally atheistic. I don't think you need to believe in God or predestiny or um, any anything like that for there to be a genuine afterlife. Oh, I never um, thought of it like that. And that being of light that people talk about for all we know is, is a deceased relative or is some other kind of spiritual being that, you know, who knows? An enlightening discussion from every angle of opinion. And, well, actually, they all have a valid point. And it is for that very reason that we need to explore further into the afterlife. Whether it exists as we are preconditioned to imagine it, or is it simply our mind tricking us, or something else? The fifth episode of Died and Survived awaits us as we reflect on those that feel pushed towards death's door. An incredibly powerful episode five is next. The further down I went, the less pain I felt. It's like I was just kind of almost like shedding a jacket or like leaving it behind me. And I felt light and just this huge feeling of peace. I think I knew in that moment that that this was death. And when I was about halfway down the tunnel, it's like something in me woke up and screamed inside my head, I'm not finished here yet. And I was suddenly like sprung back into my body. Died and Survived is hosted and produced by me, Charlie Webster, alongside my dear friend, Paul Woods Turley with research and production support from Jill Hoffman and Kyle Epler. Recording by Stephen Sletton, edited and sound designed by Aaron Florence. Lionsgate Sound, engineered by Pilgrim Media Group. <laughs>